to the open side. Karim Bete. Hufflegal here for Simon, who's quick. Pete Simon looking for Karim Bete. Back to Simon. Oh, that is wonderful. That is wild. That is amazing from the Wallabies. Welcome to a special episode of Pick and Drive Rugby. We're going to be reviewing the Wallabies World Cup campaign, both in terms of performances and Eddie Jones' role and recent controversy. So I'm your host, Ando. With me is Mitch. And Mitch, this is this is going to be a little bit of catharsis, I think. We're going to be venting a bit and also trying to be constructive whilst pointing out some of the utter incompetency and failures over the last couple of months. Yeah, look, I think if we uh, if we went back in time to well, roughly nine months when Dave Rennie was sacked and Eddie Jones was appointed as Wallabies coach, I don't think we were gonna we were expecting to sit here after a World Cup having bundled out in the world in the pool stages and uh, not seeing the likes of Michael Hooper, Quade Cooper, some of our most experienced Wallabies players met, feature in that World Cup. I, I don't think we were ex- we would have been expecting to be sitting here having to do a podcast. Um, of this caliber, I think we were mm. probably pretty optimistic in hoping we were sitting here celebrating a World Cup victory, and maybe that was a little bit naive in of itself. But yeah, it's going to be an interesting next hour, maybe, or however long this goes on for. Lots to talk about, lots to really get into. <laughs> well, however long it needs us to, uh, how, however long it needs for the two of us to feel like we've really, really just explored what we need to explore. Now, we do need to say uh, Lockie isn't able to make it tonight. He's caught up doing a whole bunch of stuff with Northern Territory Rugby, which is wonderful, uh, but it does mean that he wasn't able to do two nights in a row of podcasting. Now, the reason why, as we mentioned in our previous episode, that there is a particular special deep dive today is that on... Um, Tuesday morning of this week, Eddie Jones fronted the media at Coogee Oval at 9.30 a.m. And the first thing that I really want to point out here, Mitch, because I think it's worth talking about, is how the media invite was for in-person media only and not for anybody being able to call or zoom in from overseas. Now, Mitch, can you just briefly explain why that's important and why that might, might have been a decision deliberately made for this press conference. Yeah, so the Wallabies have been back in in Australia on Australian soils for days. They would have arrived, I think, over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, uh, and they've only been back a very short time. That means the majority of Australian rugby media are still over in France at the World Cup. That is still going on. Tom Decent from the City Morning Herald, uh, Michael Atkinson with Stan Sport and Channel 9, uh, Christy Doran from the Raw, like all of the big hitters, the big guys that we all come to expect in the coverage of rugby union in Australian rugby or in, on the Australian like, landscape, aren't even in the country. So it, it was it was very sneaky by RA, and I don't think it was just a coincidence that they were deciding to do this as uh, in attendance only interview, seeing as they had done previous interviews in the past with Zoom capabilities online with the ability to zoom in and ask these questions. I, I, I think that was very sneaky. Uh, and, and when we look at the way the, the press conference actually played out and some of the questions that were asked to Eddie, I don't necessarily think he was grilled to the degree that he would have been had we had some of the, the heavy hitters like Decent or Doran there directing the, the flow of conversation. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, to the credit of Ian Payton and Britt Mitchell, um, they they were both present and they did ask some more direct questions. Um, but you're right, considering it was Tommy Decent who was the one from the Sydney Morning Herald that broke the Japan story and he'd been the lead journalist on it, he is returning to Australia tonight, Tuesday night. Um, so he's been on a plane for the entire time that the press conference went on and had no capacity to... To, mm-hmm. to get involved. So interesting timing, interesting timing for the handling of this press conference. But one thing I will just quickly say um, to Ian Payton's credit was he did directly, directly ask the question of whether or not Eddie Jones will be participating in an interview with Japan next month. And a reply was no. Question, not at all. Reply, no. So... This is going to be something we're going to dive into more as the episode progresses, but there's something fishy going on here. 
there's something fishy going on. Someone's lying or someone is obfuscating the truth or hiding the truth behind little word games or something like that. And it's going to be really interesting over the next couple of months to see what happens. But tonight in this podcast, what we're going to be doing is a brief or broad World Cup review where we talk about a bit of the squad in general, some of the matches and just just comments and a little bit of broad level analysis of the performances. Before we then move into the Japan controversy and Eddie's response and how we are, how the general public has responded to that, what how that's all played out, the choices that RA had within this situation. And then finally, we'll ask the question of, well, where to from here? Where do we go? Uh, should he remain? Should he leave? Well, what happens if next year the performances don't improve? Where does RA go from here? So those are the three main things, the World Cup review, the Japan controversy, and where to from here. Now, throughout this entire episode, we have asked for your questions and comments, and we have integrated them within the different sections. There won't be a FAQ at the end. It will just be your questions and comments littered throughout. So I think with that, Mitch, why don't we dive into our first yep. section? And the first section is looking specifically at um, <coughs> the World Cup review itself. Now, we had a couple of really great questions. If you just want to jump across into the next slide, mate. Um, we had a couple of great questions and comments come in. And I think and I, thought, I should just say for our fans as well, the this, is, coming in. this is the pick and drive review. This is not the official review uh, that RA is now undertaking with Eddie Jones, and we spoke about it nauseam today in the press conference. <laughs> We're actually this is our review of the World Cup, so this is just focusing on how uh, the 2023 Rugby World Cup fared for the Wallabies and how it was sort of shaped and, and led into. Not necessarily the internal slash external review that's being handled by RA at the moment in the coming months. <laughs> yep. We're also not going to dive into the details of what we think needs to change in the Australian rugby landscape because that's a whole nother combination. We might speak to it a yep. little bit, but not in a huge amount yep. of detail. But the first question comes in from Super Rebels Rugby, who asked, did we go to France for the croissants? And I think in a lot of ways, yes, the croissants, the wine, the views. I know that a lot of the Stan Sports guys um, were able to post some wonderful photos of the French countryside and some of the chateaus that they were able to hire. Supposedly, Timmy Horan has a good idea <laughs> and a good eye for a quality Airbnb yeah. or a quality rental, which is great. Um, <coughs> but the maybe a more serious question came in from Jock Cudmore. Were the dads of the nation proved right or wrong with this World Cup campaign? And on a serious note, Eddie has lost all favour with Australia generally. At least now we can start from the ground up, like 2007 New Zealand. A quarterfinal or semifinal appearance would have papered over the cracks yet again, changes now. So were the dads of the nation proved right or wrong this World Cup campaign, Mitch? Oh, definitely. I think every, other than, I think, yourself, I and Lockie, we were the only ones that were really optimistic of how the Wallabies would go in this tournament. Everyone else I spoke to was pretty, uh, particularly when we we saw the squad that Eddie Jones had named, everyone else was of the opinion that we were going to do badly and that we were going to struggle in this World Cup. And we have, we really have. Uh, have we, have all those dads been proven wrong? No, they've been proven right. Yeah, we did do badly. Yeah, it's really simple. And I think I think you're right. The squad selection in and of itself raised a huge amount of questions. And um, some of some of the stats make us ask some really important questions here. So a few of the players that were called into question when they when they were selected into the squad were players like let's go with Langy Gleason, maybe being a bit questionable um, with his position. You could also argue Max Jorgensen, Josh Kemeny as well. And whilst I rate all of them as individual super rugby level players, um, their places within a Wallaby World Cup squad mm. are a bit more questionable. And Josh Kemeny got three minutes off the bench against Portugal. Why Why was he there over Pete Samu? Well, why was he there over Michael there Hooper over is probably the, um, the real question. Why Lange Gleeson was there over Pete Samu is probably the more like for like. That's, yeah, good, good, better point. Yeah, good, good point there. And I just don't see the value of that. Lange Gleeson played, what, one game? He, he played the opening game um, against Georgia. He came off the bench. 
Uh, maybe the second game as well, he came off the bench. Um, so why was he there ahead of Pete Samu, who in my mind is a far better bench option than Rob Leota? And why did Josh Kemeny with three minutes take the place of Michael Hooper? I mean, you've got one of our most experienced players in Australian rugby ever who's ready, fit to play, and yet he's not put onto the plane. And yet we're claiming that part of the reasons why we lost within a post-match presser, um, that uh, post-series presser that Eddie Jones did today, was he kept referring to the youth of the team. Well, you know how you change the youth of a team? Is you provide them with experienced players around them to guide and mentor and support them. And yet, what did we do? We left Pete Samu, Michael Hooper, Jed Holloway, and Quade Cooper at home. And then throughout the series, we then chopped and changed between Carter Gordon and Ben Donaldson, two young, inexperienced tens. So it's just so challenging to look through those things and consider on the basis basis of the evidence of the game time and everything that came through the matches, why some of those selections were raised. Um, why do you think we were so positive leading into it? Or maybe were we just trying to be those people that looked for the light and a bright side of, of things rather than just kind of uh, settle into the pit of despair that's so easy to do. I think when, when when I saw the squad that was announced, I had trepidations that we were going to struggle in this World Cup. And that was purely based on the experience level and the, the individual players that Eddie Jones had picked. The lack of leadership, the lack of rugby now to, to, to get us out of difficult situations. I thought that Fiji was going to be a difficult game. I know that Wales was going to be a difficult game. We realistically, we fired a shot against Fiji. We didn't against Wales. We scored six points and that was just ridiculous. Mm. Uh, There was no coming back from that. So I had to be positive as the Australian rugby podcaster that we are leading into the World Cup to try and create the narrative that Eddie Jones was sort of spurting and saying that we're going to France to win this World Cup. We're going to be competitive. I know these guys have the capabilities that it just needs one or two things to change and then they're going to play a lot better and it's going to change in our favour. That still hasn't happened. It never came. And so it was it was very difficult. One of the things that I want to focus on and, and that point that you, you raised previously around certain players and the inexperience of the squad that we picked was take that step back. I want to take a step back from the actual way we played and the players that were on the field. Eddie Jones has said leading into this World Cup that this is a youthful team. He said since the World Cup in days gone now, basically in in the past few days, that we're looking towards 2027 and that we're going to hopefully that this team that he's backed and picked is going to bear fruit in the future and we're looking towards the future here. Now, I don't necessarily by the way that he actually chopped and changed the selections throughout this World Cup to buy into the the thought of looking towards the future. Like you mentioned, uh, Kemeny gets minutes off the bench. If you actually want him to be a player of the future, you give him as many minutes and you rotate players throughout a World Cup so that everyone gets shared minutes. It was never an opportunity of the Wallabies having to win well i mean we had to win every single game and we didn't but we never got to a point where we had to win a game to make it out of the pool we we lost that opportunity so why are we then not giving the opportunity in the minutes to some of the wider squad members Lengi gleason uh jordan willesi like these guys that have very minimal minutes leading into this tournament are coming out of it as well mm. with minimal minutes. Yep. Yeah, like a big question in that final game is why was Robbie Valentini playing, to be honest? We know what he can do and what he can bring, and why not bring Lange Gleeson into the starting eight position um, if, you, if you definitely are building for the future? So, look, uh, it just it's just so frustrating. And the thing that you mentioned there with all the, the the pre-tournament hype. Now, I don't expect the Wallabies coach to go in and say, yeah, look, I think um, if we scrape out of the pools and, and get into the quarters, then yeah, yeah, that'll we'll have, we'll have done our dash. But all this smash and grab propaganda about how we can win the Rugby World Cup has just been laid bare as like toothless bullshit 
in all honesty. It's just been yep. laid bare as meaningless propaganda that had absolutely no substance. And the thing that frustrates me is from a broad strategy, tactical strategy approach from the Wallabies is Eddie Jones is clearly in the Squidge Rugby video um, analysis that he did of Australia pre-Rugby World Cup showed this really well, is Eddie Jones is trying to shift away from the very structured attacking game plan that um, all nations have within international rugby at the moment. He tried to make a monumental change to the way in which these players were playing rugby six months out from a Rugby World Cup with a squad that he kept in a rugby championship and then essentially ditched right before the Rugby World Cup because he chose entirely new, well, not entirely new, but largely new back row, new captains, new fly half, new scrum half where he promoted Tate McDermott into the starting line. And he made all of these changes after the Rugby Championship and then chose basically a a semi-new squad all the while trying to bring in this new revolutionary tactical approach to playing international rugby. Surely you're recognizing that it's far too much to try and do at this point in time. And you should be drip feeding these changes in the lead into this rugby world cup and then bring them in wholesale in 2025. Like what's the thinking there? Can you even get into the mind of Eddie Jones and why He's making this level of, honestly, it's it's like rubbish change management strategy that he's doing here. Like anybody that comes to do this in an organization would be out on the ass within six months of trying to do something like this. It, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, when you look at the the way that he's gone about selecting this squad and, and naming the players that he's chosen and then naming the 23 week in, week out, trying to play this new style of rugby, which realistically the way they actually went out in every single game was pretty similar and was pretty directionless for the most part. It was one up players running over the ball, one up forwards, losing the the ball at the breakdown, not having a strong on-ball presence, not securing our own ball at the ruck. Uh, I mean, I watched that Squidge video and leading into the World Cup, I was kind of hoping that maybe Eddie Jones had this grand idea. Maybe the players have adapted, like Squidge had said, that the he made a comment that the the players had picked up this style of play under Eddie Jones in six months where it had taken four years for England players to adapt to that style and that was where they got to the peak in 2019. But I don't necessarily buy that when we look at the World Cup and how we played because we weren't playing fluidly. We weren't playing positionless rugby. We didn't have our big ball runners in the middle field just popping up and playing like a 10 when it needed to. To happen, we were just running directionless rugby for most of the time, hitting up simple one-up basics, and that didn't change. We didn't seem to see a, a game plan change from Fiji to Portugal to Wales when we know that Fiji is going to attack us completely differently to how Wales is. Yet we still didn't change our our game plan. We didn't change our style. We changed the personnel, and that was forced upon us from injury. But even that didn't uh, didn't have the desired effect, or didn't give us any bonuses in those games either. Mate, one of the things that just shat me the most within this whole tournament, and I don't know how this gets addressed from a coaching level, but we were 16th in the Rugby World Cup for discipline, conceding 12.8 penalties per game. We missed an average of 22.3 tackles Per game, our overall tackle success was 16th again at 82%. And because of that, we were 13th for turnovers with just 5.5 per game. And I'm pretty sure it was Will Skelton responsible for about, I don't know, 10 of those across the tournament. <laughs> um, so it was just so error strewn that I wonder if the approach that Eddie took was not appropriate for the inexperience and also the quality of the players that he was bringing through. Like you you try and go and do this unstructured approach or um, being able to, like it, it's a bit too simplistic to say just play what's in front of you because I know that there's more to it than that. But you're relying on a lot more on players' vision 
and skill set to be able to see the opportunities and make the right decisions immediately to execute on those. Um, Australia's not that team and hasn't been that team for the last few years. You need a team with a natural skill set such as a New Zealand or Fijian squad. And so it was just incredibly frustrating just from an overall tactical approach to see what we were doing. But I think we might dive into the next question that's here from Hugh Tyndall. Because well, one more, one, one can I just say one thing before about. we move into that next question and I'll bring it up in a sec on the screen. Uh, but as, as you said, we're playing a completely new style of gameplay, but we're not sticking with players long enough and we're not picking a, a, a 23 yeah. or even yeah. a 15 that is cohesive enough to fall back and rely on some of the just the general rugby knowledge and familiarity that players have from their super sides. So we played the first two games with Carter Gordon at 10 and that Fiji game, unfortunately, Fiji targeted him hard and he had a pretty poor game. Now, did he deserve to be dropped? I don't think so. We need, if, if as Eddie had said, we need this guy to be our future superstar like Dave Rennie and Noel Alessio, you need to just give him time in the saddle and he will get better. Dropping him did us no favors. Bringing in Ben Donaldson, we didn't have any combination in terms of experience with our, our, our centers or our, um, our what is the center pairing, the, the fly half and the scrum half. Like We had Nick White and Tate McDermott playing with uh, Ben Donaldson who – they had no combinations whatsoever. It was only in the last game mm-hmm. of the World Cup, once we were ba- our, we were on life support, that Eddie Jones made a sensible decision in picking a backline that was predominantly New South Wales Waratahs. And for that game, we looked a hell of a lot better than we had looked throughout this World Cup. And that's not to say just because they're Waratahs players, they're better, but they play for the same Super Rugby side. We had a centre pairing of Lalakai Fichetti and Isaiah Parisi, who have played most of the season of Super Rugby Pacific together. Yet every other game we had uh, um, Jordi Pattaya and Samu Karevi. Now, Karevi doesn't play any any Super Rugby Pacific. He plays in Japan. And Jordi Pattaya, under Dave Rennie, was being shifted around in the Reds to be a fullback. So we're playing a player out of position and we're playing a player who doesn't have no experience or minutes with the player outside him. Why are we trying to play... Like Eddie just had six or seven things going on at once in this World Cup and all of it blew up in his face. Yep. Let's move on to Hugh Tyndall's question. What's with all the A-League assistant coaches? Um, I'll answer that one really quickly. Sorry, not A-League. What's with all the league assistant coaches? Um, That's the, that'll that be 2024. Bring in all the soccer be, coaches, yep, all the in, AFL coaches. Definitely. Um, That is simply because at the time when he was hired, all other top quality coaches are essentially unavailable because they're in contract. So you need to go with people who are off contract or you can get from another code. Um, No, I don't agree with that. That's that's, not, boo, boo. Sure. Okay. What's your, what's your theory? um, That, no, that, sorry. That's, that's correct. Yes. What you said is correct. And that's, that's fair in what you're saying, but (laughs) he didn't have to do that. He put himself in a corner by doing that. We had. We had Petrus Duplessis as our scrum coach. We had Laurie Fisher as our breakdown. We had Dan Palmer. Actually, no, Dan Palmer came in, sort of, he was transitioning. But we had players that were willing, uh, coaches, sorry, that under Dave Rennie that were willing to continue through, well, Dan McKell, I think, left in, in the transition. But we had coaches under Dave Rennie that would have stuck around and would have coached at this World Cup under Eddie Jones had they been allowed to. Laurie Fisher said that he would have coached. He would have continued coaching the players if he was given the opportunity. Eddie Jones came in and got rid of all of them. So the fact that Laurie Fisher then went on to coach Australia A before he now has retired in Europe during the World Cup goes to show that he still wanted to contribute to the World Cup and to our players. So I I don't buy that. Like All I'm saying is Eddie Jones made the situation by getting rid of coaches. He could have had an alternative situation. He didn't. He chose not to go that way. Next question. Would Oze have gone further at the Rugby World Cup? Uh, yes, because they have Ryan Lonergan and they also have Ned Hannigan playing for them. And those two players in and of themselves would have achieved the smash and grab that Eddie Jones was asking for. You just get the gold and goldie. Oh, is he saying they would have won the whole Ned thing? Ned Hannigan's. Oh, mate, without a nice. shadow of a doubt. And then Hadigan lifting yep. the 
William Webellis Trophy. That'd be just, <laughs> just, just next level. Um, should we start a crowdfunder to pay out his contracts so we can sack him? No, he doesn't deserve the money, mate. Um, either he stays on as is or he chooses to step away, mate. I'm not paying anything. Australian rugby public shouldn't be paying for that. And then Reese Gower. I think if that's we stuck with Rennie and Dick somewhat to be normal, honest, anyway. Rugby World Cup squad, how deep do we think we would have gone and what would the longer-term implications have been to that path? I'll get you to speak to this one, mate. Do you think we would have gone better under Rennie and what would be the longer-term implications? Yeah, look, I think uh, whether we're still in the competition at this point, like whether we make it through to the semifinals under Dave Rennie, I'm not 100% sure of. We definitely make a quarter. I think we beat Fiji we probably beat Wales or we come very, very close. We don't end up on this uh, bonus point of death, pool of death situation that we found ourselves under Eddie Jones. We would have had the experienced players like Michael Hooper, like Quade Cooper or Bernard Foley to fall back on when Carter Gordon sort of, I don't even think Carter Gordon goes with Dave Rennie at all. Noah Alessio potentially, I'm not too sure under that circumstance either. We would have had a much more experienced squad with leaders, with clear leaders. And that's one of the things that this Wallabies team under Eddie Jones lacked was clear leadership that stood up and directed and, and told players what they needed to do at, at the, the right times, which we didn't have in this World Cup. So, yes, I definitely think that we get through to the quarters. From that point on, the experience, the way that uh, Dave Rennie has built that team, has sort of created the culture of playing for each other, uh, and the camaraderie that those players had under Dave Rennie, maybe that would have been enough to get them up and over uh, Argentina or England to to progress through to the semifinals. But, you know, again, sliding doors moments, we will never know, unfortunately. We will never know. So let's move on to the next question with Jay Skelton 90 My question is... What was the budget spent for this World Cup and the build-up? I don't actually have the answer for that. I tried to do a bit of research mm. to find out. Um, I know that it was not cheap because if you look at the cost of taking the entire team over to Arnhem Land to start with and having their final week of World Cup preparations in Australia there, um, can't forget also flying up all the wags to Sydney to see them off, <laughs> uh, flying in first class as well. Can't forget that one. Um, before yep. they then went and spent, and justifiably for this part, justifiably spent time in the base in France ahead of the Rugby World Cup. Like that, that cost would be immense. Um, I don't know the figures for it, but it would be significant. So, Mitch, unless you know the figures, should we move on to the next? Question? I don't know the exact figures, but there are other elements that we need to remember and to focus on too in the build up to this. Like Eddie Jones created roles in this World Cup preparation that didn't exist under. Dave Rennie hadn't existed in the Wallabies before. He he brought in a, a, a learning coordinator or a learning coach that was meant oh, to yeah. oversee yeah. the the way the play, like structure and streamline the way the players learn things. I mean, looking back on it, that was a waste of time. He, he brought in, uh, I, I want to say mental health coaches, but they were like, uh, I can't, the, the actual words sort of escaping me at the moment, but like psychologists that help deal with the mental side of the game of being, you know, down by five points against mm -hmm. New Zealand saying, we're going to come back and get, get over this. He brought in a team of, of coaches there to work with the players. That's fine. That is fine. In a, in a successful world cup campaign, you could look at those, those influences and say, okay, they clearly paid off and they brought in benefits to the preparation. But looking back now, I don't see any benefit to any of the, the way that the Wallabies played that they would have contributed in a positive way that had seen us perform better. Like, I, I don't know how Eddie Jones could justify creating those positions now looking back, considering the way that they had played in this World Cup. And that's an interesting point. Um, we'll come to a bit of a discussion about the supposed independent review, which is going to come from RA, will be conducted for RA about the Rugby World Cup campaign. We'll talk about that a bit later. Um, but it will be interesting to see what the nature of that review and the like actually is. But moving now to Reed Goosen. One, who holds the RA board accountable for the stupid decisions leading up to the Rugby World Cup and over the past 10 years? Well, I think that one's pretty easy, mate. It's the Australian rugby public. And you know how they're holding them accountable? By not turning up, by not watching, and by not following. 
the I, I have just um, changed jobs and I'm now, uh, well, everyone knows I'm a teacher. I'm now teaching at a school which has produced uh, many, many wallabies. And I'm in the staff room chatting to people who they, by their own admission, 20 years ago, they were diehard rugby fans. But because of the changes to the game that have occurred over the last kind of 10 to 20 years, combined with, in their words, the ineptitude of rugby administration, they just don't follow it anymore. And they're so negative and critical about it. Um, and I'm being the one having to be, again, positive and, and talk up um, the potential and the, oh, well, it's only up from here uh, who, approach. Who do they so follow now? The people what, are voting what sport do they mostly follow? Um, some of them still follow Shoot Shield. Some of them do. Um, okay, so they're still following sport. They're just not following just the Wallabies. A little bit. A bunch of them are just general sports fans, you know, people who will keep an eye on the cricket, okay. keep an eye on the league, AFL, that, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah. they, they used to, by their own admission, be diehard fans and can name like every team from the 90s and the early early 2000s kind of thing. Um, number two, why is Eddie applying for other jobs before the Rugby World Cup? We'll get to that in a moment. And then three, did the board have any say on picking such an inexperienced squad? Um, personally, I highly doubt that the board is getting involved in uh, the selection decisions of the Wallabies team. That would be interference on an incredible level that a coach probably wouldn't stand for justifiably i think um is that a fair enough statement to make mitch anything else you wanted to add there uh no that so that last point for mine I, I, that's one of my bug bones in this this whole or bugbears sorry in this whole world cup preparation is i think i might have said this on the pod a few weeks ago when you were away endo but eddie jones first of all must be an absolute wizard with a powerpoint because he has hamish mclennan and the rugby australia board wrapped around his finger how he goes into submit his team sheet to Phil War and Hamish McLennan, first of all, regardless of the rest of the board, whether they get a say or not, probably irrelevant. But those two guys are in leadership positions at World Rugby, at Rugby Australia. And so they should look over that sheet and go, okay, so you've picked this squad, you've left out Quade Cooper and Bernard Foley. Why? And Eddie Jones then explains why. You can probably get past that. Oh, we're looking to the future. Carter Gordon's the future, yada, yada, yada. That's fine. They then go, why have you not included Michael Hooper? And again, whatever Eddie Jones has on that slideshow is good enough for them to then agree and say, okay, that's fine. The poster boy of Australian rugby, who is currently plastered on the wall of the Australian embassy in Paris, we're just going to leave him at home. They've already printed the World Cup manual the the official uh fan book or the official um guide to the tournament with michael hooper on the cover he's the standout player written by world rugby and we're just going to say okay that's fine we're just not going to include him what how how should that happen that shouldn't happen one of those players should say okay no i agree with 90 percent of this squad but michael hooper has done so much for this sport over the past 12 years or so, he deserves a place in this World Cup squad. Regardless of if you play hey, him... I'm going to jump in there. I'm going to jump in there because you're pointing to a really, really good thing that surely Hamish McLennan gets, and that's the marketing value of Michael Hooper. Okay. Now, he has spoken at length about the um, the, the signing of Joseph Suwali'i and how that is, um, there's a lot of money outlaid, but you're already making it back because of the media attention, everything like that you're going to get from his pro- progress later on. Okay. I don't agree with the amount that we spent on him, but I, I can gr- begrudgingly see that argument. How much negative media attention came onto the Wallabies because of the non-selection of particularly Michael Hooper? And what was the cost of that? And what was the cost of that in their international standing to have arguably the best player of Australian rugby not for over the last 10 years not present in the Rugby World Cup squad? Now, you can say whatever you like about his supposed calf injury. That's bullshit. You took Max Jorgensen with an injury and he supposedly was recovered enough to be selected before he then got injured again. You can take Michael Hooper. You can take Michael yep. Hooper on the plane. And Michael Hooper, so, more reports, Eddie with- Jones said in the press conference of the World Cup naming squad, uh, Michael Hooper is expected to be fit for the France game. At that point, they played France before the World Cup. So 
They knew they yep. were playing it. He said he's expected to be fit and ready to be for selection from that game. We've just chosen not to include him. So he didn't even yep. use that as an excuse. He just said, we've not gone with him. Exactly. Let's move on, my friend, because we do have a lot to cover. Let's have a really quick break before we then jump into the Japan controversy. Let's go. The biggest controversy that emerged over the last few weeks was Eddie Jones and his dalliance with Japanese rugby. Now, I find this entire controversy and situation incredibly damaging, not to Tom Decent, the journalist from Sydney Morning Herald, who un uncovered the interview with Japan rugby, Japanese rugby, but I find it incredibly damaging to the integrity of Eddie Jones. So let's go through some of the timeline and some of the um, reporting by Tom Deason and what he's on the record is clearly having said before we then move into Eddie Jones's responses and what he has revealed today in his press announcement at Kuji Oval. So starting with Tommy Deason. So Tommy Deason is, we've met him a bunch of times. He's a really nice guy. Um, good, good journalist. He writes good quality stories, which are quite well evidenced and he's never come under any type of a uh, cloud or question about the veracity or the truthfulness of his sources and reporting previously. So I'll, I'll say that there um, in that I think he's a good journal. Now, he has come out and put an article saying that on August 25th, just days before the Rugby World Cup began, Eddie Jones has been in an interview either directly with JRFU, um, Japanese Rugby Union, or with um, representatives of for the first round of interviews discussing the potential for Eddie Jones taking over the um, the Brave Blossoms in 2025. So not seeing out his contract, but actually leaving at the end of the Rugby World Cup and joining Japan Rugby. Eddie Jones took pretty big umbrage to this and has denied it again and again, saying he is committed to Australian rugby and that he, when asked directly about whether or not um, he knows anything about the truth of these stories would be saying things like, I don't know what you're talking about, mate. Not denying the question directly, but deflecting the questions. Now, further stories started to break. You had the Telegraph over in England. You had news stories coming out of major news outlets in Japan, also linking Eddie Jones to this job because people have obviously seen the Tommy Deason article and done their own research and found their own sources which have spoken to this interview process. As a result of the increased media attention, Japan Rugby has delayed their interview process. No longer are they conducting interviews during the Rugby World Cup, but they're waiting for it to finish. And as a result, any further potential interviews will not be happening until after the Rugby World Cup has been completed. Now, today, oh, one thing I'll quickly say, Tommy Deason has gone on the line talking about the process by which the story was um reported upon. And he said that when they first found out about it, they didn't believe it. They, they thought it was, I don't know, just simply not true. But he and his, um, his team, his editors, they went and checked the veracity of the source and got some uh, additional confirmation and found out actually it was true. Hence why he's reported it and staked his journalistic integrity and his journalistic reputation upon this. Now, Eddie Jones today has fronted the media at Kuji Oval and he was directly asked whether or not he is going to be hanging around and clearly said, yes, I'm staying with Australian rugby and I'm committed to Australian rugby. Um, when asked about whether or not he'd been talking to Japan, his response was, I quote, haven't been speaking to anyone, mate. When asked, why do these theories exist? Quote, no idea, mate. Will you be participating in an interview with Japan next month? No, not at all. No. And so he has only now started to provide, provide definitive answers. But if you note, and you notice, he deflected on the questions about whether he'd spoken with Japan rugby, but he was definitive about whether he was having further conversations with Japan rugby. 
So that's just mm. an interesting little nuance there in that he has not come out on the record and clearly denied whether or not he had that initial interview, but he has denied that he will be having further interviews with Japan Rugby. So what do you make of that, Mitch? The fact that Eddie Jones hasn't just completely come out and said off the cuff, I have not had an interview with Japan Rugby. I am I am dedicated to Australian rugby until 2027. The fact that Eddie Jones has not said one of those words or any of those words to my to date makes me still question whether his allegiance is with us or not, what his true intentions are. Yep. I yep. I have half of my mind seems to is is of the opinion that Eddie Jones has lost the Japanese role in the ensuing weeks through the way that this has played out through the media that they've decided that no we probably we like we've called on him we don't think he's the best option so he hasn't been offered that second round interview and that now he's starting to sort of backtrack and and is aligning himself a little bit more to the Wallabies way and saying that he he's sticking around but even then Eddie Jones is still evasive in answering questions around his future with Australia when they say are you are you committed to Australian rugby yes i am but he's not saying like i'm going to be the wallabies coach until the end of my contract in 2027 he's not outright saying that he says all of these yep. evasive things that could be taken in three or four different ways like it's not up to me are, are you going to be so one of the questions yeah. they asked him yep. are you going to be the wallabies coach are you going to see out your contract until 2027 and he said that's unfair that's unfair for you to ask that because that's not up to me the, the board could sack me effectively what he said. I think he said something else of like, it's not up to me to, yeah, to see out that full yeah. thing. Yeah, so he, he said a few different comments there, but the general vibe of the marble of the thing or what he was saying was that I'm committed to Australian rugby until 2027, but it's not my decision because in this current day and age, results cost coaches and I could get sacked. So on that point, I actually don't have a huge amount of an issue because he is saying, yeah, I'm committed up until 2027. The thing that you are completely right about pointing out is, mate, just fucking deny that you didn't do the Japan interview. Come out and say verbatim, I did not meet with Japan and do an interview for the Rugby World Cup, for the, for the national job after the Rugby World Cup. Just say it. If it's true, say it. And because he's unwilling to say it, and like we know some of the media managers at Rugby Australia, they are good people, they are intelligent, and they know what they're doing. If he had not had that interview, I am confident that he would have been counselled to simply come out and tell the exact truth that that interview did not happen. And it's, it's, just, it's just a lie or it's a source which turned out to be false. For the, for the reporters. But the fact that he has not, in my mind, is a smoking gun pointing towards him actually having interviewed for the job. Now, now, I might be wrong. I might be completely wrong, and he didn't. I don't think I am, but I might be. Okay, so I'm going to put that caveat out there. But, so, but let's make the assumption that Tom Deason is right, that you and I and our feelings toward this are correct in our interpretations of what he's been saying and what he's on a record as having said. What does that say about his position as the head coach of the Wallabies and whether or not he should be in this position moving forward if he is courting or being courted by other nations to break contract early and come and coach them days before the Rugby World Cup begins? What does that say? Oh, you... It it makes his role pretty untenable. Like there's no way that he's going to be able to, to work with the players and stay in the organization as the head, as the figure that is consistently reported on. If he's not wholeheartedly behind his campaign and behind his players, the whole thing sounds fishy, the whole setup, the whole, all of it, looking back on the whole world cup, the way that he went through the rugby championship completely changed his team for the world cup change the narrative in the way that he was addressing the press from the minute that they got to the World Cup of saying, you know, we're going to win this smash and grab to lost their first game. And then all of a sudden he's talking about, oh, I could be sacked. You know, that that's a he was the mm. one that brought that up. And he started to bring that consistently into the, the press conferences around, you know, well, I could be sacked. They could get rid of me. The results aren't going the way they want. He's not ever, he never came out in those, the, the weeks after the Wales game and said, 
we're looking towards 2027. This is my goal. I'm committed to this team. I'm committed to these players. He never said that. He just deflected. And if he didn't have an interview with Japan Rugby, he needed to stand up today. And the first thing that he should have said when he opened that press conference was, I want to address the media and I just want to make it clear. I did not interview for the Japan Rugby job job or the role. Yep. I am committed to the Wallabies. I am the head coach. I have signed through to 2027. Barring the review that's coming up now over the next few months, I intend to be the Wallabies coach through to the end of my contract. I intend to yep. be the Wallabies coach through to the end of my contract. Now, that doesn't say that mm-hmm. that takes no responsibility for getting fired or getting sacked by RA. That leaves it in their, in their ballpark. But he just hasn't done that. And he's been slimy yep. and he's been... Even in today's press conference, there was one journalist there. I don't even know where he was from, but he had a very thick Irish accent. And every time Eddie Jones asked him a question, and I thought most of the questions that he asked were legitimate, good questions to be asking, Eddie Jones just didn't respect him, didn't give him an honest answer. At one point, he asked him around, is there a clause in your contract? Is there a get out of jail free card? Like, is there a clause that you can break? No, he doesn't need to answer that one. And that's fine. No, that's no, that's right. He doesn't didn't have to answer the question. That's fine. He goes, oh, that's not, I, I shouldn't have to answer that. That's between me and RA and that's fine. But he follows it up with, is that okay, mate? Is that all right? Is that the answer you mm. want? Like, just leave it. Don't be antagonistic like that. That's fair enough. This is going to be yep. a heated conference. You've done all these things. Just don't bait Let's- the journalist either. Yep, I agree. Let's keep on going because we do have a couple of uh, questions or comments here with the first one from Samuel Malone. We need Eddie Jones to continue here. He made a very bold first move in essentially tanking this World Cup for a powerhouse come 2027. If we are to acquire a new coach, he'll be set up to fail. He'll be picking up the dregs of a shattered team. Eddie needs to see this out. This is on the basis that the rumours surrounding his Japanese interview are not true. If true, he has ruined his legacy and has left Rugby AU in a near impossible resurrection. Now, I completely agree with the second part of that in terms of if it is true, he's ruined his legacy and has left RA in a really hard situation. Um, We'll come to what next pretty soon. So people, can we just remember that comment from Samuel in Mm -hmm. terms of the... um, the, the challenge of actually bringing in a new coach after Eddie Jones has gone with his new policy of youth and essentially tanking it. And we'll jump into the next question that we've got here from Michael Tomlinson. When Eddie Fs off, who should be the coach and why should it be Ewan McKenzie? I would love for uh, someone like Ewan McKenzie to come in. He was an excellent coach, Link. Um, very, very well regarded within Australian rugby circles for all who worked with him. Um but he won't come back. He doesn't even, not even involved with rugby anymore. Uh, so unfortunately, Michael, I know it's probably tongue in cheek, but he won't be coming back. Um, look, mate, we've right? got, we, we, he has, uh, we have, sorry, I should say, Dr. Joshua Yuvaraj has also asked, can we get a fan petition going to get Simon Raoui in as Wallaby's head coach? Uh, so Mitch, who would your pick be if, if Eddie Jones was to step down um, as Wallaby's coach in the next month couple of months uh maybe the second round interviews do occur for the japan job who would you suggest should be stepping into his role as uh, head coach it's a pretty tough question to answer honestly i don't see anyone coming in now that's going to have as positive an input that we need to resurrect things if Eddie Jones does in the coming months step away and does pursue this japan opportunity and does end up signing with Japan and leaves Rugby Australia in the tatters and the mess that it is, it would be career suicide for any international ref, uh, international coach to come and take this job currently in the hope of turning things around within the space of four years, even turning things around enough in the space of two years to be ready for the Lions in 2025. Now, if we look at the the coaches that we have in Australian rugby at the moment who who are coaching our provinces. Darren Coleman is is still pretty new and raw to this level, so I wouldn't be throwing him up for national head coach. Stephen Larkham is the other one who's been bandied about. I don't think he's ready either. We haven't really no. seen the um, transformation or the, the next steps taken from the Brumbies team that he inherited from Dan McKellar. Dan McKellar would probably be the best option, 
but he signed a, a long-term contract with Leicester. Why would he come? Or Leinster. Le- Leicester. Leicester. Why would he come Leicester. back now? We'd have to play that out. It would be a massive cost for us to bring him back. Would he do it? Maybe. Uh, would it be the best option? I'm not too sure. The other person, and and as this person, as this question raises, Simon Rauluie. Simon Rauluie today or this morning has announced that he will not be extending his contract with Fiji Rugby after December 23. So he is available. Should that be- become an option? Would he be a good fit? Well, he knows the setup. He knows Super Rugby. He was our forwards coach under Michael Checker in 2019. Would he be a good option? Possibly. Would he want to do it? That's the other question. I'm not too sure. Would he be set up for yep. success? Definitely not. Yep. I'll jump in here. I think um, if, if there was to be a change, you'd need to go for a bit of a two-pronged attack and actually bring in someone with a bit of a director of rugby role overseeing the rugby pathways and systems within Australian rugby as a whole, who's then providing oversight for perhaps a more junior coach. Because I don't think we are in a position to hire some of the best coaches in the world. It's a poison chalice. They won't want it. But Australia still does have some prestige and an up-and-coming coach who's making a step from maybe a provincial level to an international level or from a, um, a smaller international team to uh to australia could well do it alongside a director of rugby so someone like andy friend coming in as that broader systems level overseer with maybe a dan mckellar or maybe a bernie larkham although i don't think you should do the role or a simon raloui um that idea of having two people within a role i think would be more effective than trying to find a single individual to fix the problem because I don't think there's anybody who can address the systemic issues that need to be addressed in order to support Wallaby's improvement over the next four years. And that's that's the problem. You need both systemic so and who's, coaching. If you go down that if you go down that channel, who do you bring on as a director of rugby that is going to set up the coach for success? Andy Friend, because he's got the experience with Oh, the as Irish the director, system, not the or coach. Or David Nusafora. Yeah. No, as as the director, Andy Friend or David Nusafora. I don't think Nusafora would ever come it. back, unfortunately. But Friend, maybe. No, no. But we're we're talking pipe dreams here because I don't think Eddie's going to f off anytime yeah. soon. Um, at this point, That's true. but let, let's let's keep going, um, because we are <laughs> quite deep into this podcast. Um, William Van Nuffelen, or Van Uffelen. How do we plan for the Lions tour now? Uh, by the way. We have now moved into the third section. Sorry, guys. It's been a long one. Where to (laughs) from here? So the basic point of this is what do we do now? What do we do now? What does Australian rugby do? What does RA do? What do we as supporters do with the situation that we find ourselves in? So William is asking, how do we plan for the Lions tour now? Do we back the boys who played the World Cup and assume they develop or do we panic and throw the kitchen sink at it? And as um, Jay Skelton replies... I'd start by picking most of the players from the best performing Super Rugby team and then slotting in only the absolute standouts from the other teams. Personally, I'd like a bit of a combination of both. I think you do stick with the majority of the players who played at the Rugby World Cup, but also recognise that you want there to be certain combinations from the provincial teams that carry across from the provincial into the national setup. And so, yeah, I think... You maintain the World Cup squad where you possibly can because most of them are of a good age to carry through to 2027, which will then enable the Lions to a success as well, hopefully. The issue that I have with, uh, and then that's the that's what we need to do. We need to stick with this team now. We need to pick and stick and give them as much time in the saddle as we can to build the combinations to make them ready for 2025 when the Lions get here. My issue is how do we support these players now with the test matches we have on the calendar in the lead up to 2027, we don't have any easy tests coming up. How do we support them? We we can't bring in experienced players now to to bolster their their knowledge and bolster their experience. We're, it not at this point, we're not bringing back Michael Hooper. We're not bringing back Quade Cooper. That's what we needed in 2023 at the World Cup. We didn't do that. So who else can we bring in to do that? Realistically. Maybe Jed Holloway, but the amount of players that then hang around and want to continue to to put up, then put their name up for uh, for selection is is another one. 
No, not at all. And it's just part of the challenge of thinking um, of the future. But I think the pick and the stick with a few combos thrown in where possible is just the starting point of where to move from here. Moving into the next question, which came across from Celluloid Sports. How do we build more cohesion and give top tier players more game time together? Possibles v. probables in the form of city versus country origin or something. Hard to just rely on dispersed super squads. Um, I might answer this one, then I'll give you the next question from John Corbett. So for me, you go with an emphasis on the Australian A team and giving them as much game time as you possibly can throughout the international season. Um, but you play them in locations where players can go between the squads as required. So if you're not, if you know you're not in the match day 23 for the Wallabies, well, you're going to the Australian A team and playing alongside your provincial teammate. So as an example, you might have um, Ryan Lonigan and Noah Lolasiu playing for Australia A. And they are going to be starting every game for Australia A next year because a commitment is made that they are in 2026 or 2025 going to be players who are the, in line for the Wallabies contention. Um, so you, you're just trying to find combos like that where you possibly can. Um, John Corbett asks, slightly different question for me. Is there any appetite amongst our fans for taking a lead and playing the Portugals, Uruguays and Georgias more often to help solve the disparity? Or are we happy to play the same eight countries all the time because they make more money? Unfortunately, that's a question that Hamish McLennan needs to answer. And he's realistically not going to take the pay cut to play those teams and, and concede that we're almost a second tier nation at this point and are at the level required to to be competitive with Portugal, Uruguay and Georgia. Those probably would be good teams to to play consistently and we'll get wins and we'll get better by playing them. Uh, We probably will develop faster than if we do continue to play South Africa, New Zealand uh, and England and and Wales as much as we do in the, in the rugby champs and, and uh, in the mid season tests. But yeah, with Hamish McLennan in charge, I don't see a whole lot changing at the moment. Uh, because it comes down to being, you know, the the big flashy Australian Wallabies. Yep. Yep. Great question. Um, and good thoughts there. So can you jump back to our very first slide of the pod, mate? And I'll ask a few questions to finish things off here, because that's the last of our um, fan questions that have come in. So thank you to everybody who has put them in. But Mitch, let's just go a few quick fire questions here. We don't want long explanations from either you or myself. Should Eddie mm-hmm. Jones leave or remain? Jeez. Um, remain. Okay, remain. For me, if he took the Japan interview, he leaves. If he did not if he did not do the Japan interview, remain. That's not fast. I would have so, said something similar if that was if I was able to elaborate on it. All right, all right. Quick. One statement, one statement, fair enough. But you're the same as what I've said, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. great. Yeah. Okay. What happens? Oh, I still, if we and lose I will just say, again? I will just say quickly as well. I, I still am not sold that he won't leave. Like I'm still not convinced from the yep. press conference today that he's sticking around mm. for the long haul. I still couldn't see a world where he leaves. Yep. What happens if we lose again with little improvement next year? So just so you know, we've got the rugby championship, obviously, um, but we also have Wales coming down for a two-match series, potentially a third match, although that might go to one of our Pacific uh, mates. So. Tonga, Fiji, Samoa, someone like that. So three games against, un- well, yeah, other opposition than the rugby championship. What happens if we lose again with a little improvement? They will have to sack him. If we don't, if we get to the end of the rugby championship or even at the end of the, well, it would be the rugby championship, I imagine, because that would be then onto yep. the July tour. If we haven't won another game or if we've come close to Argentina but been smashed by every other team, then we're going to have to let him go because we haven't seen any improvement and we've gone backwards since Rennie. Yep, completely agree. Now, what does RA do from here? I had a quick thought about this. Um, I think the first thing they do is they media manage Eddie up the absolute wazoo. He is not allowed to say a single thing at a press conference unless it has been scrutinized by the media moguls at Rugby Australia. That's number one. He has to improve his relationship and his narrative with the media and stop being so combative when many of the questions that he's arced up about previously have been legitimate 
investigative, not investigative journalism, but illegitimate journalistic questions. So that's number one. And then number two, Rugby Australia, with their marketing pigeons, they need to shoot the body pigeon. They need to employ like some more intelligent animal and they need to change the narrative around centralization. They need to stop having leaks coming out where um, they're trying to be bullheaded with what's going on and they need to get ahead of that narrative and convince the public why centralization is needed. That's my thought. What does RA do from here, Mitch? We need to shift the focus away from Eddie Jones. We need to stop the narrative of Australian rugby being, is Eddie Jones staying or is he going? Who's he interviewed with this week? He, he interviewed with Japan. Oh, he took an interview with the USA. Who's he interviewing with? We need to focus on the rugby again. We need to focus on the players. We haven't heard from anyone, any player since the Portugal game. We haven't heard of anything, no no comments from players, nothing about how disappointing the World Cup has been. There was one video that they made uh, with Will Skelton. And I, I, I do did, want to say I, did I like thought that. that video was great. It was great. That's what we need, though. We need more of that. We need to hear from the players. We need to understand how they feel, how upset they are about this World Cup, that it generally means something to them. And we saw that. We saw players after the games, after that Wales game, saw players crying. They were clearly upset. But that's what RA should be focusing on at the moment and talking about the rebuild and getting bigger and better for 2024, getting ready for the rugby champs, getting ready for the Bledisloe, get rid of the narrative around Eddie Jones, shift the focus because that's all anyone's reporting on at the moment and that's all the media care about. I understand that, but we now need, RA needs to shift the focus. Does anyone even know that the Wallaroos play their first test in World WXV1 on Friday? No one knows. Like an, an, an interviewer asked Eddie Jones today, yeah. are you going to, uh, like you, you were appointed as sort of the, you, you when you took the role, you were going to do work with the Wallaroos. Are you going to do work in the future? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'd love to, mate. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to do more work with them. And they said, well, are you going to Japan? Are you flying to New Zealand to, to support them in their game on Friday? Oh, no, I won't be doing that, mate. Well, no, you should be. That should be the priority. Eddie Jones should be seen yep. in Wellington supporting the Wallaroos. That's what we should be focusing on, the rugby. Yep, 100%. Um, his, his direct quote answer to that question was, not at this point, I think I have enough going on here. Probably threw in mate somewhere within that as well. Um, but he should be in New Zealand supporting the Wallaroos and it matters being at the first game. Maybe he can't get to every single game because he does have the really significant review that's coming, but he's got to be at the game. I agree. Now, the final thing that I think we'll finish this episode on is a comment about the review process that is going to be occurring. So Eddie Jones and his coaches have already done their own internal review. They conduct. They took two days after um, their final kind of time of being knocked out of the Rugby World Cup was uh, confirmed. Um, they took two days, have done an internal review, already passed it on to RA, that's done. What's going to happen now is an external independent audit of Rugby Australia's program, the Wallaroos program, the allocation of funds, the use of funds, decisions that were made throughout it to then provide reflections and um, recommendations moving forward. If that review is not made public, I'm going to cry. I don't know how much I actually mean that, but I'm going to be so, so frustrated again if it's not made public now we need a video of you crying every... we'll put it out on our socials <laughs> maybe now maybe not every single moment um every single element of terms of fiscal elements of it is um made public but at the very least the recommendations or the executive summary that is going to be provided as a part of that needs to be made public because there needs to be greater transparency if the if rugby australia want to win the marketing battle that they have so desperately been losing over the last six months. They need to recognize their mistakes, recognize the failures and go, yeah, right. This Rugby World Cup was a disaster. The worst performance of an Australian team at the Rugby World Cup in history. Here's what went wrong. And here's what we're going to change to make sure this does not happen again. And that can only happen through transparency in my mind. So that's my perspective. Quickly throw it over to you, my friend, before we wrap things up. The one thing that we need to do and get right moving forward is we need parameters put on Eddie Jones. 
Eddie Jones has been given a blank check, a free reign. He's basically been handed the keys to RA from Hamish McLennan up until this point, and it's been an absolute pile of shit. <laughs> I know we don't swear on this podcast, but we've got to we've got to call it what it is. It's been an absolute shit fight. Uh, the Wallabies have gone backwards. They've had their worst their, their worst loss ever to to Wales. Their worst ever um, outcome at a World Cup. We're in the media of him. Is he staying? Is he going? Where the the game has been brought into disrepute. What he needs is parameters put around him. Someone, whether it's a rug director of rugby or whatever it looks like, whether it's just Hamish McLennan or Phil War somehow saying and saying and sort of talking him out of some of the decisions that he's making. He needs to be guided and said, look, no, you can't. We need to have certain players selected in this squad. We need to go in certain directions. You can't just take this youth only policy moving forward, youth and only youth moving forward. You can't be saying these types of things in the media. Eddie Jones up until this point has just been left to to fend for himself, to do what he wants to do. And it's gone backwards. It's put the game backwards five or six steps. We now need professionals to come in around him and guide him and say, okay, in this press conference, say this, steer away from this topic. Don't talk about this. If someone throws a, a, a loaded question at you, don't bite on it. Don't go back at him. We don't want any more of that. And we just need to have, he just, he, he's out of control at the moment and we need to bring him back in line and we need to start getting some direction from our leaders in RA around this. Eddie Jones at the moment seems to be the be all and end all and the one making all the decisions at RA and and not making decisions and not saying certain things. We're not hearing enough from our leaders. We're not hearing enough from Phil Warren, Hamish McLennan around what is happening behind the scenes. And so we need that. We need that transparency and we need Eddie Jones to stop being Eddie Jones basically for a few months. (laughs) <laughs> well, he's got nothing to do now except for be a part of the review for a while. Hope he takes some time off. He rests, recuperates, and comes back into it with a refreshed outlook and being able to be a part of a more positive direction for Australian rugby moving forward. So, and let's hopefully we see him in the Cooper more been... next year because where did that go? Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So team, think well, team, I say team as you and I, we are the team. Um, <laughs> it has been good being here with you, Mitch. Thank you so much. It's been fun to get this off our chest in a way. Hopefully, everybody listening, that there has been some constructive elements to what we've spoken about within this pod. Um, we have probably been a little bit more blunt than we sometimes are, but it's, it's been a long year for Australian rugby fans. <laughs> been a really long year and so in a way i'm actually happy to just kind of like wipe this off and wash my hands of australian rugby for a little while and just get into the nitty and gritty of the semi-finals and finals of the rugby world cup there's going to be some incredible rugby over the next two weekends so on that note of positive rugby coming Thank you. Thank you for reminding me because we've just been speaking about the Wallaroos so much. They've got the next three weekends, the Wallaroos have matches against the best teams in women's rugby. So you'll be able to get that live and um, immediate and great commentary as well from Stan Sports. So make sure you get involved there and support the girls, get behind the girls as they play for Australia in the World 15, inaugural World 15 competition. So on that note, let's finish up. Mitch, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And everybody listening, thank you for getting to this point of the pod with us and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.